for September 21st, 2016. This is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. Tax the rich, feed the poor, Welcome to the Energy Transition Show. I'm your host, Chris Nilder. The basic premise of this podcast is that global warming is an urgent problem we need to address, and that the best way to address it is through energy transition, replacing carbon-emitting fuels with clean, carbon-free energy sources. Of course, energy transition comes with numerous other benefits as well, but the main reason for doing it is to address climate change. However, some scientists believe that another approach may be necessary, geoengineering. Geoengineering includes a variety of proposals, most of which are designed to either reduce the amount of incoming heat by reflecting sunlight back into space, or somehow capturing carbon dioxide emissions and sequestering them long term. Now, regular listeners will be aware that I'm a long-standing skeptic on geoengineering. Ed Crooks and I rather openly mocked it in episode 22. But when I came across a recent book on geoengineering by a respected science journalist, I thought perhaps I should give it another look and see if it deserved to be part of this show's dialogue. After all, geoengineering is basically the opposite of energy transition as a way of dealing with climate change. So why would it belong on this show? And the answer is because it makes sense to think about all approaches and all possible solutions together. As the old saw goes, we're not going to solve the problem of climate change with silver bullet, but with silver buckshot. That journalist is Oliver Morton, a senior editor for Essays and Briefings at The Economist, an extensively published science journalist, and previously the chief news and features editor at Nature and the editor of Wired UK. His 2015 book, The Planet Remade, How Geoengineering Could Change the World, is a deeply researched argument for serious scientific evaluation of geoengineering strategies and includes an unexpectedly scholarly exposition on the history of man's many earth-changing activities and the debates that have swirled around them over the years. I think it also offers an elegant description of the thermodynamic system of the earth and the ways that climate change is affecting it, and for that alone, the book was worth reading. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Oliver, to the Energy Transition Show. Very glad to be with you, Chris. In your book, you cover a number of potential geoengineering strategies and explain in some detail what the scientific basis for each one is, how it might work, and what the uncertainty around it is. 
In the interest of time, I don't want to get into too much detail on the various technologies, but I would like to give our listeners just a very brief kind of overview of some of these ideas to set the context, okay? Sure. All right, so the first major approach that I read about, it imagines a veil of sulfuric acid essentially being created across the stratosphere, which is the big layer between our atmosphere and space, which would create a reflective layer that essentially would mimic the effect of a large volcanic eruption. What are the mechanics of that approach? Well, I'd just like to pick up on one thing you said there. It wouldn't necessarily mimic the effects of a large volcanic eruption. The amount of cooling that you get depends on the amount of stuff that you do. And you do not necessarily want to do the amount of cooling that you get from a large volcanic eruption, because that's really quite a spectacular effect. So it wouldn't necessarily be that large an effect, but it does work in a similar sort of way. And the the way that you get that you do something like this is that you take either sulfur dioxide or more likely sulfuric acid up in a plane or possibly pumped up to a tethered balloon in the stratosphere somewhere about 22 kilometers you'd want to do it a number of different places around the planet and you let out a fine spray of well if it's the gas you just let out the gas if it's droplets of sulfuric acid you let out a very fine spray and those will form into aerosol particles which will then spread themselves laterally the the stratosphere is really counterintuitive for those of us who grew up a long way below it because air in the stratosphere moves side to side much more than it moves up and down and so you can actually spread things out really all the way around the planet without that much difficulty so you don't have to have pumping stations or planes all around the planet a lot of the spreading comes for free from the stratosphere okay the, the important thing is that you put very small particles up there that reflect sunlight away and what those particles are the the reason that the emphasis has been on sulfur so far has been that that's what volcanoes do but that's not necessarily what people might choose to do but isn't sulfuric acid what we were trying to stop when we implemented emissions controls on power plants in the 70s because it was causing acid rain and destroying forests i mean wouldn't this maybe cause the same problem it would if you did it at a very high scale i mean but this is in one of the papers that reignited discussion of geoengineering exactly 10 years ago in 2006 paul crutzen a great atmospheric chemist made this argument, the argument you're making, sort of in reverse. At the moment, we pump sulfur dioxide into the lower atmosphere, into the troposphere, through power stations. And although we in Europe and America do it much less than we used to in China and other parts of the developing country, there's still an awful lot of sulfur emission from this. There's also a lot of sulfur emission from marine diesel and things like that. Those are things you want to control. But the lifetime of sulfur in the troposphere is very low. It's days to weeks. The lifetime of sulfur in the stratosphere is very high. So you can get a lot of cooling in the stratosphere with a very small amount of sulfur because the sulfur stays up there a long time. So in round terms, the amount of sulfur that you might be thinking of putting into the stratosphere would be a couple of percent of what is currently being put into the troposphere. And Gritson's argument was actually very subtle. He was saying that we want to diminish the amount of sulfur in the troposphere because it kills people and damages ecosystems, and those are very good things to stop. When we decrease the amount of sulfur in the troposphere, we also effectively warm the planet because we're removing the cooling effect of the sulfur particles in the lower atmosphere. If you could replace that with the cooling effect of much longer-lived sulfur particles in the stratosphere, you would basically be able to cash in the gains of not polluting the lower atmosphere without having the cost of warming the planet while you do so. 
Interesting. Okay, so there's a there's a big difference as to where the sulfuric acid particles are located. Uh, it's really a matter of lifetime. If you put them up into the high atmosphere, they last for a year or so, maybe a couple of years, and that gives them a lot of cooling potential. If you put them in the low atmosphere, they last a few days or weeks, much lower. And so you can do much more cooling with much less sulfur if you do it in the stratosphere. So this approach to geoengineering for climate purposes is, is not really considered the same sort of a, a risk to our forests as acid rain was. No, I mean, there would be some deposition, but it would be considerably less. The other thing to remember about acid rain is that most of the deposition is pretty close to the source. I mean, not that close, but close in terms of hundreds to a few thousand kilometers. Those are the transboundary effects, but they're not global effects. Most in fact, the vast majority of the sulfur that you put into the stratosphere, you would expect to be deposited harmlessly in the ocean because it's not being produced by power stations near where people live. Ah, okay. That's an important point. Okay. The other major direction in geoengineering that you discuss, apart from reflecting more sunlight back into space, is in capturing and sequestering carbon. And you acknowledge that so far, CCS has been a commercial failure and that the technical challenges of it, particularly where it concerns capturing very diffuse CO2 out of the air, are pretty daunting. And as listeners of this show are well aware, I've dismissed CCS because it's it's far from achieving any economic viability, and no world governments are stepping up with the hundreds of billions of dollars that are thought to be needed to get CCS over the hump with R&D and turn it into a technology that can survive in the market. But you actually seem to see it as more of a policy issue. Do you think governments should be offering direct massive subsidies to make CCS viable? Not necessarily, because I think there are other ways to get quite a lot of your low to zero carbon fuel. But I think that the problem with CCS is certainly that it is a it's a pre-market technology at the moment. And it illustrates one of the things that people who discuss geoengineering worry about a lot, which is uh, moral hazard. The idea that the possibility of doing something in the future decreases the likelihood of doing something else today. And right. so with CCS, one's not being terribly cynical if one says that basically CCS has been treated by the fossil fuel industry in rather the same way that St. Augustine used to pray for chastity, you know, make me chaste, Lord, but not yet. And similarly, <laughs> CCS gives you a license to go on being a fossil fuel company saying, well, eventually we'll do CCS. But that's only true if eventually you do CCS. And as you say, both for economic and for policy reasons, that's actually not happened. I remember actually talking back when he was the climate minister, talking to Ed Miller band in Britain about this and he was talking about all these wonderful market solutions they were going to do through CCS and I said if you really want to see what a CCS power station looks like in operation buy one don't try and get, rig the market to give you one just buy one just go out there and buy one right. because your brother whose brother was the foreign secretary at the time when they want an aircraft carrier you know they go and buy an aircraft carrier and no one has really done this no one has just gone out there and say okay i'm going to build one of these suckers in a fairly large scale and we'll see what we can do to make it work better and the other thing is i remember talking to an energy analyst who was a recovering engineer. He's recovering very comfortably in an investment bank at the time. <laughs> and he was saying that, you know, it's just really hard to get engineers very excited about making a coal-fired power station rather less efficient. You know, it's not the sort of thing that you get up in the morning and say, oh, I'm going to go and sort of like put all these MacGuffins on the end of the system at the coal-fired power station. They'll do it if you pay them, but it doesn't get anyone's juices pumping. So the thing about geoengineering with carbon capture is that Carbon capture and storage, as traditionally proposed, doesn't actually offer you anything that 
you can't get otherwise. There are other ways of getting clean baseload power. We may not like them. I was listening to a conversation you were having about nuclear the other week, and we don't need to go into all that now. The thing about carbon capture and storage for geoengineering is that if you burn not fossil fuels but biomass, then the argument is you can actually transfer carbon directly out of the atmosphere into geological storage while taking energy at the time. And that is a unique capability that nothing other than biomass with CCS really offers you. The idea that you can take use plants as the front end, as it were, to take the carbon out of the atmosphere and then get energy out of the process that then puts that carbon away. So that's, I think, why bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, or BECS as it's known, is one of the technologies that's talked about most in this field. Now, I think there are also really severe drawbacks to BECS, but I think that's what distinguishes BECS from, as it were, classic carbon capture and storage. Well, okay, and, and that's an important point. I will note, however, that in most of the big energy agency reports and forecasts and so on, they all see CCS playing a huge role in the future, and they don't really talk about BECCS. So it's constantly been a matter of puzzlement or even outrage for me to read these reports from IEA and agencies like it that are constantly forecasting this giant future for CCS, and I'm looking around going, guys, this doesn't exist. What are you talking about? Yeah, well, as we go on in this conversation about geoengineering, we're going to come up with a lot of technologies that don't exist. But I agree, there's something kind of egregious about the way that the policy community is, or chunks of the policy community, seem to have agreed to talk about CCS as though it's real, whereas people actually making real policies have done very little to actually make it real. Okay, good. It brings to mind one of my favorite lines from, from Bruce Springsteen. Is a dream a lie if it don't come true or is it something worse? And you know, that's kind of where we are with CCS. I think that's the first Bruce Springsteen reference on this show. Well done. Well, let's make sure it's not the last. <laughs> <laughs> so another direction in carbon removal that you discuss is the concept of fertilizing the ocean with iron filings, which would essentially stimulate the growth of plankton, which would then sink to the ocean floor. So effectively, the plankton would be capturing the carbon and then it would be sequestered down on the ocean floor that way. But you also note that the prospects for this approach are currently pretty slim. Can you talk about that a bit? Absolutely. I mean, it comes to one of the actual key concepts, I think, in talking about geoengineering, which is leverage. You know, like Archimedes said, give me a lever long enough and a place to stand and I will move the earth. You need to move the climate system. You need a lever. And one of the things I think that people underappreciated is quite what a spectacular lever carbon dioxide is. There's a calculation made by Ken Caldera and one of his grad students, and I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the student's name. We can put it in the program notes. But they calculated the ratio of the amount of energy that a mole of carbon dioxide captures in the atmosphere to the amount of energy you get by burning a mole of carbon in fossil fuels. And the ratio is significantly above 100,000 to 1. So the amount of energy that the Earth system stores away as a result of the burning of a mole of carbon is 100,000 times more than the energy humans get. I find that fact underappreciated and staggering. And so for geoengineering, you need something which has got similar sorts of leverage. And at one point, it looked as though fertilizing the oceans with iron might, might offer something like that, because there are these interesting areas. This was discovered when people started looking at the ocean's 
from space, basically, in the 70s and 80s, where there were, seemed to be lots of nutrients, but not much life. And by nutrients, we mean here basically nitrogen, phosphorus. And so there were these high nutrient, low chlorophyll regions that were a bit of a puzzle. And one of the people who came up with the answer was an American oceanographer called James Martin, who pointed out that what was missing in these regions was iron. And though you don't need much iron to do photosynthesis, you do need some. And so the photosynthesizers out in the ocean were being limited by a lack of iron. And theoretical calculations suggested that by adding a mole of iron to one of these regions, you might be able to pull down 100,000 moles of carbon by the amount of increased photosynthesis you get. And this was very exciting. It was also exciting from a pure science point of view, because one of the things that Martin suggested was that it was possible that during the ice ages, the oceans were better supplied with iron because there'd be more dust blowing off drier continents than the continents today. Hmm. And those oceans with more iron would be more fertile and would have a, a, a faster, more vigorous photosynthetic pump pumping carbon down into the deep ocean. And so that would be one of the reasons, maybe the main reason, why the carbon dioxide levels were lower in the ice ages than they are today. And modern thought suggests that this is a role in the low carbon dioxide conditions in the Ice Age, but not necessarily the determining one. But it was an interesting enough idea, both from the geoengineering point of view and from the Ice Age point of view, and from the general ecosystem physiology point of view, for people to go out and try it. So there have been a number of experiments in the Southern Oceans mainly, uh, scientific experiments put on by the research councils of America and Britain and Germany and a few other places where they put iron in and seen what happens and you do get a plankton bloom but you don't necessarily get very efficient transport of the carbon that's sucked up from the atmosphere in that plankton bloom down into the deep oceans. And this only works as a form of geoengineering. If you're genuinely taking the carbon away from the atmosphere and putting it somewhere where it, it won't trouble you or your descendants for a thousand years or so. And that transport doesn't seem to happen as effectively as people had hoped. There was also a problem that in some cases you were getting nitrous oxide produced by the blooms which of course is much more powerful greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide and that effectively undid any good you might be doing so at the moment the possibility of doing this on a large scale doesn't look very plausible you might be able to engineer better systems than the ones they used and you might be able to find cleverer ways to do it but there are also two other overriding problems one is that the absolute scale of this effect is relatively constrained. Some modelling suggests that even if you were able to make up for all the iron deficiency in the southern ocean, which is where this really matters, you would still only increase the amount of carbon taken down by a billion tonnes a year. And, you know, a billion tonnes of carbon is a lot, and that would be a great thing to do, but that's still 10% of annual emissions at the moment, give or take. And so it could be a contribution to something, but it's not, as it were, the answer in and of itself. The other thing is that with most discussions of geoengineering, people worry about the effects that the geoengineering might have, the unintended consequences it might have for um, ecosystems. And with ocean iron fertilization, you're actually, it's not an unintended consequence on the ecosystem. Completely messing up the ecosystem is how you actually do this. You know, you completely change the balance of primary production and you would completely change the way that the ecosystem worked over a large part of the Southern Ocean. And though you might be willing to say that that's a price you'd want to pay, that's the sort of thing that people get, I think, understandably, extremely antsy about. And so 
I wouldn't say you can completely write it off, but both the fact that it's inherently limited, turns out to be difficult to do, very difficult to monitor how well you're doing it, and you have to revamp a large part of the ocean ecosystem. Those are fairly big hurdles for that technology to get past, I think. <laughs> okay. So are there any other major geoengineering techniques we should discuss before we move on? There are a couple that we glided over. One is that we talked about BECS. There is also the possibility that you mentioned of rather than using plants as a front end, of using effectively chemical engineering to take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And at the moment, there are a couple of small companies that are looking at this. It's possible that in some ways that might be a way of making carbon fuels without fossil fuels. So you could take the carbon dioxide out, you could react it with hydrogen to form either long-chain uh, hydrocarbons or methane, and you would then have a non-fossil fuel source of carbon-rich fuels, which would then be effectively carbon neutral. You'll have noticed that the problem with this is that it would require a great deal of energy, because you both have an energy overhead in taking the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, because although we're used to worrying about how much carbon dioxide there is in the atmosphere, if you're trying to filter the stuff out, 400 parts per million is pretty hard. You know, If the atmosphere was a box full of marbles, one in 2,500 marbles would be carbon dioxide. That's quite a hard sorting problem, taking that carbon dioxide out. Then you have to produce the hydrogen to react it with to make the fuels. So that's, you know, it's, this would be an energy-intense process. At the same time, we know that it's possible now to do some energy-intense processes relatively cheaply if you're willing to put them in deserts with lots of photovoltaics around them. But then you would still have to address the question of what is the full cycle EROI of this thing? And that oh, sure. seems sure. sort of problematic right off yeah. the bat. Right but there. I'm saying, for me, it's kind of ludicrous to think that you're going to be making a big difference to things by taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere while you're still putting it in. To me, right. taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere is an end game thing. And that's an important endgame thing, but it's an endgame thing. And yeah, it's a bit like when, walking the wrong way on an escalator. Yes, to do it at the moment, it's kind of problematic. But the other side of that is that we have to remember, and this is something that I think is important about geoengineering in general, is that it widens your perspectives beyond sort of like the next three COPs or the next cycle of the IPCC or even the life cycle of the generating kit that you're investing in right now. It urges you to see climate in its true centennial to millennial time frame. And if that's the case, then if you believe, as I think I do, as I think you do, as the whole idea of an energy transition does, that at the other side of the energy transition, there's quite copious, quite clean energy. Well, I hope so. Then when you have yeah, exactly. If, if that's not the case, then we've got other problems. But if that is the case, if it is the case that clean energy can be made cheap and copious enough to replace fossil fuel energy, you can go on making it to do other things. So it's not clear, and I think this is an interesting issue we might want to discuss a bit, there's a perception that a, a planet in the 22nd century that's gone clean might be a sort of like, as it were, a low energy planet. But I think if renewables and possibly in the future advanced nuclear provide cheap energy, then you can use that cheap, clean energy to do a lot of stuff. And one of the things you might be willing to do would be to take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. But that's a sort of like 2080 to 2150 sort of question, not a 2020 to 2030 question. 
Right. Okay. And and I do want to talk a little bit about that kind of low energy future scenario in a bit. But first, I just want to kind of wrap this point up. So you don't seem to have much doubt that some sort of geoengineering is at least technically possible and capable of restricting global warming to the agreed target of two degrees Celsius. And you present some evidence that shows that at least some of the possible solutions would be very affordable, certainly compared to the likely costs of the damage from climate change. Your concerns seem to be more about the political pragmatism of actually making geoengineering happen than its technical feasibility or its economics. And you're quite evidently frustrated with people, particularly environmentalists, who dismiss geoengineering on principle although you do acknowledge their concerns. So is that a fair assessment of your view? That's pretty fair, yeah. I mean, I think that doing something that you would call geoengineering, just in terms of terminology, when I talk about climate geoengineering, I try to be quite narrow in this and say that I'm talking about systems which decouple the climate future from cumulative carbon emissions. And so that's either by reducing sunlight or by taking some of those cumulative carbon emissions out. And that sort of decoupling... I think it's technically feasible, but we don't fully understand what all the geophysical and geochemical and biogeophysical feedbacks would be as a result. The challenge is doing this in a way that is safe, just and governable. And getting to that position where people want to have the discussion, not that geoengineering sort of like exists and there's a question whether to implement it or not, but how do you design a system and a mode of governance that people could have at least a sufficiently large number of people could have a sufficient amount of trust in that it didn't just look like a harebrained waste of time. That's, to me, the key question. Hmm. How do you find a way to do climate politics that includes the discussion of these things, which, and as you say, it's quite conceivable that that some of these technologies might allow you to hit a a two-degree target that you would not otherwise hit. But we have to remember the, the real aim here is not to hit targets. The real aim here is to reduce the harm done by climate change. And I think it's quite possible there are technologies out there which, if properly implemented in a safe, just and governable way, could reduce that harm. And I want to help the world have a conversation which tries to find that out. Okay, well, then I think we do need to uh, move on from the technical stuff and really kind of dive into some of the political dimensions of this. So toward the end of the book, you discuss how some kind of cooperative international governance would almost certainly be needed to execute and monitor and maintain a geoengineering program. And I admit, I don't really share your optimism about the likelihood of that. I mean, particularly after what has been, I mean, I don't think it would be too controversial to say, an utterly abysmal year for political cooperation globally. In climate or just generally? Just in general. I mean, look around. You know, <laughs> I mean, I wonder if you really believe in your heart of hearts that such political cooperation is really possible or if you're just allowing the possibility mainly because most of these geoengineering schemes are likely to be non-starters without it. You do me a great compliment by imagining that I have a heart of hearts. I tend to take the view that that comes from the uh, prison diaries of the Italian communist Antonio Gramsci, where he said we must strive to have pessimism of the intellect but optimism of the will. If you don't think these things are likely to be possible, you won't do them. You won't get anywhere close to doing them. If you think that there are possibilities, if you allow yourself, to borrow a phrase, the audacity of hope, then you will at least have increased the options for your own action. And so that's part of my answer to you. The other thing is that intractable international problems 
do change over time. And I'm thinking, you know, there are diplomatic problems that get solved. And I don't think geoengineering is as simple as any of the ones that I can think of. Rather, climate change is as simple as any of those, but there is progress on that. But also, if, for instance, if you look at the literature about nuclear war and nuclear proliferation from the 1940s and 1950s, it's clear that people have a large expectation, not an overwhelming expectation, that proliferation will go quite a long way and that nuclear wars will be thought. Remember that in Herman Carr's book on thermonuclear war, he talks about successive nuclear wars. In fact, by a number of reasons that have to do with chance and have to do with policy and have to do with politics, so far we have avoided that end. Do I think that the international governance of nuclear weapons is a huge resounding success? No, I think it's a horrible debacle in many ways. But do I think that it has gone better than it might otherwise have gone? Yes, I do. And so I think the fact that you can't imagine going forward that things are going to work out all right isn't an excuse for not trying at all. Well, all right, fair enough. And, you know, I do applaud your optimism for global international cooperation, particularly, you know, considering that we're just a few months down the line here from Brexit, I mean, which seems to be going the opposite direction. Yeah, no, I quite, I, I quite see that. There is, though, and partly, we do have the rudiments of a global climate policy, although it's, it's easy to overstate the success of Paris. It's absolutely wrong to claim that Paris was not to some extent a success. And there is also the fact that sometimes problems get easier when they get bigger because you get more ways to look at it. There's a quotation which I'm not going to be able to call to mind from Eisenhower about this. And it is possible, and I talk about this a little bit in the book, that you might find ways to use negotiations about geoengineering to encourage people into mitigation. And that's a very important thing to do because, as I've think should be clear from this conversation so far, but I want to make absolutely explicit. Geoengineering is not in any way a solution to climate change. It's a response to climate change with more climate change, but just of a different sign. And it is in no way an alternative to the goal of large-scale mitigation and moving to a zero fossil fuel economy. It's not an alternative. It's not, oh, we can go on business as usual as long as we do some geoengineering. That doesn't work at all because the geoengineering techniques that one might use to, to enable that, they don't provide you with a perfect counter to the warming that you get through greenhouse gases. And the more warming there is and the more you seek to offset it with geoengineering the more difficulty you'll have with that mismatch which will for instance drive changes in the way the water cycle works so the best sort of geoengineering is the least that you can get away with but it's in no way should it be seen as an alternative to mitigation and it might seem an odd way to look at it but it's really a complementary therapy or it's, it almost sounds like you're suggesting it could be a bit of a trojan horse which i never really thought about in what way well, in the sense that getting people to talk about engineering or to think about it opens a conversation to mitigation strategies that might not otherwise happen. That's true. And it's, I mean, so we talked a little bit earlier about this idea of moral hazard, about the idea that because you think that you have some degree of safety down the line, you will behave more dangerously now. And that has been a big part of people's thinking about geoengineering. They've been afraid that talking about geoengineering now will make 
make mitigation action less likely. But there's been some work done with sort of like facilitated discussions by social scientists, which suggests that the reverse is true, that when people listen to discussions about geoengineering, they take climate issues in general more seriously. And they say only one way to sort of like caricature it is that people say, well, if, if they're serious enough about this to be thinking of that sort of response, then I should take it seriously too. Right, right. Well, you know, I, I give you a great deal of credit for being very transparent in this book about your own biases, for acknowledging that your views are inescapably personal, and for trying mm -hmm. to give people on the opposite ends of your argument a fair shake. I think that kind of transparency is really very lacking in most discussions about climate and energy, which too often just pretend to be some kind of scientific neutrality, when in fact there's a boiling emotional underpinning to their arguments. So, it, you know, to quote you in a condensed fashion, in the book you mentioned that your hopes for geoengineering reflect a feeling that things press in, that history and the world embroil the present in a way that confines choice ever tighter, that you wish for a bit more room, a bit less pressure, time and space to breathe in your confined, asphyxiated perception, which I thought was a really quite a powerful passage there. And that sense of confinement and the desire to bake free of it is, a, is really a palpable undercurrent throughout your book. Do you worry at all that your bias prevents you from taking seriously other pathways that might ultimately be better for humanity? It doesn't blind me to them. I think, as, as you say, I try to be fairly upfront about the biases, and, I think, and I'm very happy to hear you think that I succeed in that at least better than maybe the not particularly good average in the field. And to slightly push back against the grounds of your question, I want a world where humanity can make its own choices about what's good for it and has the slight maturity and the options to do that. And I think it's in that process. I mean, I think that in some ways... One of the things that would be great about geoengineering that worked would be that if it worked in the way that I talk about working, in a safe, just and governable way, it would suggest that the world had come up with much better ways of dealing with problems in general. And to some extent, that is part of my hope, that geoengineering proves tractable in a way that might be transferred. I've got this nagging feeling that in 100, 200, 300 years people from a better world, and God, I hope it's a better world, will look back and say it's so sad that the way that they were arranged, the way that they were tied into the practices of their time, didn't allow them to see that there were better things that they could have done. So this worry that in the end this will be an opportunity cost. Hmm. Well, in a similar spirit, I mean, I have to admit what is probably my principal bias here, which is that, you know, it's essentially a Pascal's wager for me. I simply don't trust the same humanity that's been creating large volumes of nuclear waste for 50 years and still has no idea what to do with it, or that can't effectively maintain its own infrastructure, or halt the enormous damage that it's done to the biosphere. And, you know, I'm talking about things like species extinction, vast dead zones in the Gulf of Mexico, the Pacific garbage gyre, the crashing populations of ocean life, and the, the whole litany of horrible things, to engineer a solution that would actually change the entire climate. I mean, our species has, in my view, essentially no credibility to make the claim that it can pull something like geoengineering off successfully. None. But on that basis, our species has no claim that it can solve any. I mean, putting the environmental litany in those terms, why would you think there'd be any good environmental action? 
Well, I mean, I, I, I don't. I don't think geoengineering is. I mean, I, I can see when you list things like that. I can see the cause for your pessimism, but it seems to me that that pessimism should then extend to pretty much everything about the environmental future, rather than just geoengineering. Well, I think that's a fair point. I'm just basically loath to give humanity the license to take this risk. I don't think it has shown that it can handle itself well enough to be granted that license. And so you probably won't be surprised that I've, I actually found your treatment of the potential risks of geoengineering pretty light mm -hmm. uh, throughout the book. I mean, you acknowledge that they exist. Uh, in fact, I'd like to quote one of your passages here. You say, I understand why people are afraid of climate geoengineering. Its various techniques pose risks that are not as well understood as they need to be, and pursuing some of them with any seriousness may weaken other efforts to limit the risks to which the buildup of carbon dioxide exposes the world. It tampers with what people understand to be natural, which rouses feelings from uneasiness to disgust. Okay, that's pretty much a good summary of where I'm coming from. But you don't really detail those risks in the book, certainly not compared to the detail with which you describe the solution. So I, I just wonder if you've given them adequate thought. Oh, no, I, I mean, well, I mean, the risks, I mean, I mean, there are two classes of risk, right? There are the biogeophysical risks, the risks of changing the way the Earth system works. And those are, among other things, probably very large scale, almost certainly highly nonlinear, but in, in the near field, probably to some extent linear. And so small amounts of geoengineering, and I think I stress uh, quite a lot in the book, that certainly for the sunlight methods, for the changing the albedo of the planet, I think small is definitely the way to go. The evidence for strong risks, strong feedbacks that would be largely harmful is simply not there. There is definitely an effect on the hydrological cycle if you have large amounts of geoengineering. But the idea that geoengineering at the 1 to 2 watts per square meter is shown to have big risks to the environment, I simply don't see that evidence. And in fact, I've been quite struck by the fact that most of the um, research, most of the modeling research, and there are questions without modeling research we could come back to, has always looked at large amounts of geoengineering, of geoengineering that's equivalent in size but not in sign to a doubling or even a quadrupling of carbon dioxide. I don't think that that's something that one that's something that's useful to look at from a scientific point of view. But it seems to me that that's slightly poisoned the policy discussion because it's assumed that geoengineering is always very very big. And as I say, the least you can do is probably the best. There are other potential risks. And I think those are why you need to actually do research rather than just say, I'm sure there are risks and then we shouldn't do anything towards that. Because the worst thing about this moral hazard point that we talked about earlier is that the very talking about geoengineering, if there is a moral hazard, raises that moral hazard. The worst thing to do, it seems to me, is to talk about geoengineering and have some sort of thought that if things got, quotes, really bad, if there was an emergency, then you might do something, but for the time being, not to actually think about how you might practically do it. And I think what you should do is actually think about how you might practically do it, because that's how you will actually discover the risks. If you think that it's something that your children's children may have as an option in 80 years' time, then you're not going to bother to find out about the risks. So at the moment, I think we haven't found anything like a show-stopping risk, but it would be really, really good to do the research that found out quite, that was able to quantify those risks a lot more rigorously. 
All right. Well, that's fair enough. I mean, I'm absolutely a fan of doing research and trying to f evaluate the costs and benefits before you get too far down a path. That's fair enough. And also, it's not just a matter of costs and benefits. It's a matter of doing research would allow you to find what sort of program you might want and what its goals might be. So, for instance, David Keith, who's one of the people I talk about in the book, who's done a lot of work on this, has looked at scenarios where you use geoengineering merely to affect the rate of climate change. So you do enough sunshine diminution to, um, to, to slow the rate of warming, at least according to the models. That's a really different goal from the goal of using geoengineering to, for instance, return the climate to its pre-industrial or to limit a climate change to one level or another. Yeah. And those sort of discussions about which geoengineering goals fit with which geoengineering technologies and with which risk profiles, those are crucial questions about designing something. Geoengineering is not something out there to be discovered. If it's some, anything at all, it's a human endeavor to be designed. All right. You know, and, and I certainly wouldn't be opposed to more pilot projects that would actually have a good chance of unearthing what the real risks are and what the real potential benefits are. Take a more of a incremental approach. You know, I think that's certainly within the realm of good scientific practice. But from a kind of a different perspective, I, I have to wonder what so interests you about geoengineering when many other similarly informed scientists and pundits think humanity really should be reaching for a solar-powered civilization, ultimately. I mean, if we're going to talk about goals, you know... and you I, I have no problem with that. I, I quite like the idea of a solar-powered civilization. Okay. I, I don't have any problem with that. I'm interested in reducing the harm done by climate change while we're on the road there. And I think given that we don't know anything like well enough either the time that it takes to reach a solar-powered civilization or the climate sensitivity, I think you need to have a broader portfolio. I've got no problem with the idea that in the long run, humanity lives with a solar-powered civilization. But again, I'm also kind of okay with humanity living with whatever solutions it can come up with that don't harm it and the rest of the planet. So I'm I'm not evangelical about solar. I've been really impressed, as so many people have, that you know the uh, progress in PV has moved at a pace that I hadn't expected from someone who first started looking at this in sort of like, you know, 20, 10 years ago, I'm, I'm very impressed by that. But the goal of geoengineering is not to produce a geoengineered planet as a goal in itself in the same way that you might talk about a solar-powered planet. It's to reduce harm to people that comes from climate change. Okay. Well, is there any other approach to addressing climate change other than geoengineering that you would actually endorse? Well, geoengineering is one of the various things that you would do about climate change. I'm very skeptical about nuclear in most of its formulations, but I'm not existentially opposed to it. I'm very keen on renewables in many of their formulations, but I don't I don't think there's anything that I particularly like about renewable energy other than its low carbon footprint. That's what I like about renewable energy. So for me, if I'm talking about the climate, I like to have as much as I can have. And I think that geoengineering should be part of a portfolio of responses, or at least its consideration should be. I don't think that it's an end in itself. And I don't think there's in any way an opposition between a geoengineered world and a solar-powered world. And as we were talking about a little bit earlier, I could imagine a use for a large amount of solar power in the next century, in the 22nd century, I can imagine a lot of solar power being used to pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. I think that would be something that people might well think was worth their while sometime in the 2150s. Okay. 
you know, I, I want to probe again a little bit about sort of the fundamental worldview here that you're coming from. You seem to take as a given that the global human population is certainly on its way to 10 billion people, that our objective should be to seek even more complex human societies and a higher standard of living for all, higher level of wealth for all, and that anything short of that doesn't really seem to be worth serious consideration. But I want to take the other side of that view. Because I think the default, maybe even the easier path toward addressing climate change is to shrink. Shrink our populations, shrink our economies, live lower yeah. energy lifestyles and consume less and set as our long-term objective a global economy that actually lives on solar income in a managed and deliberate way. And I, I think that if we take that path seriously, we might find that it's not so bad at all. It might even make us happier. And I, I wonder if you've really given the idea that, say, human population might peak around 7.5 billion and then decline through the forces of demographic change, adequate consideration. There's, there's definitely a possibility of that, but it's not something which I, it's not something I wish to see under sort of like active policy control, right? I mean, we had a large amount of history in the 20th century with trying to direct population growth or curtail population growth directly, and it was ghastly. You know, there were real crimes against humanity done in the name of population growth. I'm very keen on the benefits of meeting currently unmet contraceptive need. It's definitely true that there are people who are getting pregnant, who don't wish to be pregnant, and are having children that they're, and they didn't wish to have children. I think that's bad, and I think that shouldn't happen. But I think that more generally, if you say to people that the population should be smaller, you're effectively saying to people either you must change your views about procreation or you're saying people have to die more i mean you read for instance you read alex the population bomb and you read the passages where he says the real problem with costa rica is that the death rate isn't high enough and it's just an extraordinary thing to have this worldview where you go to a thriving interesting country like costa rica and say you know the real problem here is that you're not dying fast enough <laughs> so i find population I and mean, population dynamics are interesting demographics matter but I don't think beyond meeting people's individual desires for control over their fertility, I don't think they should be a, an explicit matter for policy. Going to the other part of your question, the solar income, as various people have been pointing out since the beginning of the 20th century, the solar income is potentially enormous. If you can make solar power cheap, why can't you make it extremely plentiful? particularly in a world where a large number of people live at the moment without any access to modern energy services. So I've got no problem with the idea that the world might be a better place if American per capita energy use was the same as Japan's. You know, it would be a better place if American per capita energy use was the same as the UK's or France's, and it would be a fine place if the UK and France use as much energy as Japan. But I kind of also want Chad to be able to use the sort of energy that Japan does. I want to get away from a world where, you know, my fridge uses more energy than the average person in Ghana. And I don't think the way to do that is to just to get me a more efficient fridge, though I did actually get a more efficient fridge last year. It's to increase the availability of energy to people in Ghana. There's a, an example that I use in the book, you know, we've moved from a position at the beginning of the 20th century, where no one had modern energy services, to position at the beginning of the 21st, where about 2 billion people did, because of about a billion people with modern energy services in the developing world and about a billion of us in the developed world. I really don't think it's reasonable to suggest that the other 6 to 8 billion people don't get that. And I, I think that's 
to some extent morally objectionable, but I also think it's very, very bad basis of policy to tell people, you know what we have? Well, we're going to give it up a bit in the way that suits us, and you're not ever going to have it at all. Well, okay. That's certainly a fair point of view. And and actually, you had some really useful statistics in the book about the amount of solar income that we get, that the sun drops about 170,000 terawatts of energy on the Earth. Mm-hmm. About a 30% of that is reflected back into space, leaving mm-hmm. 120,000 terawatts of solar income, which is like 10,000 times the mere 15 terawatts that humanity uses. So it certainly ought to be possible, if we can continue to develop devices to capture the stuff, that everyone could have a, a fairly high standard of living in terms of their energy income all from solar. Yeah. And I think that as long as you can intercept it and store it, I mean, if that's where the energy end game plays out, that's fine by me. As long as we stop changing the radiative forcing properties of the atmosphere with carbon dioxide without really thinking about the consequences of that. That's, to me, the problem. And so I I find it slightly implausible from a look at history that you will get to a system where there is really only one primary energy system. I think that, you know, by and large, we've seen that during energy transitions, as I'm sure you know better than I do, they rarely go to 100%. And by and large, previous fuels still stick around and alternative fuels stick around for various purposes. So I'd be surprised if we went to 100% solar world. But I wouldn't be at all surprised in the long run by an 80% solar world. If you took me down to the south of France and gave me lots of nice wine and and duck and things and showed me around Eter mm. and told me all about fusion, then I might say that sometime in the 23rd century, maybe we'd do the fusion locally. Though I do tend to agree with you that when there's a very, very large fusion reactor just nine minutes away, it's probably better to use that than try to build your own. But <laughs> as I say, I'm not really hugely concerned about how people end up doing clean energy. I am concerned about clean energy pathways that I don't think will lead to 80 to 100% decarbonization, because I think that's where you need to get. But I like SolarFine as a tool to that end. I'm not concerned about given technologies just in and of themselves. No, but you clearly also have a strong distaste for anything that smacks of limits. I mean, this is something that really jumps out from your book. You seem confident that our remaining fossil fuel resources are sufficiently abundant and affordable for the foreseeable future. You don't see any important limits there. You call the proponents of limits-based approaches, like Paul Ehrlich, or at least other people who have warned about overshoot, you call them gloomy and lacking imagination and insufficiently concerned with the human condition. You you bash Malthusians was... at some length. I mean, <laughs> Yes, and, uh, and, and if we have more room on the podcast, I'll go on with that. I think... Uh... There's a part of the discussion there that uh, that's true. I do think that people, that if you look at the neo-Malthusian literature of the mid-20th century, which still has a presence in the thinking of environmentalists to this day, I think there's some very, very distressing stuff there. And I think you need to realize that. And I think people in general, I'm not saying you in particular, people in general need to realize that the amount of people and the amount that they do on the face of the earth is not subject to an a priori ecophysiological limit because how people do agriculture and how they do industry changes the amount of agriculture and industry that they can do and so the idea that there are overall global limits 
is one that is questionable because the limits depend on the technology. The idea that there are limits to what you can do now is absolutely obvious and plain and a part of the lived experience. And we need to obviously realize that there are practical limits, but I don't think there's much to be gained by thinking that it's necessarily useful to think small about these things. Yeah, in fact, I was quite struck with the way that you dismissed the metaphor of spaceship Earth, as promoted by Bucky Fuller and others, as being sort of weak and unpleasant, and in fact claimed that it's really an inapplicable idea to climate change because purpose, in your view, is a fundamentally human judgment. And you have a passage in the book here I'll, I'll read. The question is not how to save the planet as it was, but how the planet can be remade in a way that works while respecting the rights of the people living on it and the value that they place on it. It's a task that calls for imagination and compromise much more than naval discipline. It's a task of homemaking, not ship handling. So you clearly don't like the suggestion that there are fixed limits to Earth's carrying capacity and you sort of rule out solutions that are about living within limits. But in the end, I guess I, guess I find this view to be sort of profoundly anthropocentric or, or at least essentially humanist. I mean, call me a tree hugger if you must, but I actually think that other species have as much right to live on this planet as we do, that we have a fundamental duty to respect and protect our home beyond what humans want or value or what we pronounce to be purposeful. And I, 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 and I do, in fact, as you say in the book, worry about unintended consequences, about the side effects on ecosystems and biodiversity and about the risks of irretrievably altering the natural world. And I don't actually think that humanity's history of altering the world is any sort of a justification for continuing to do it, let alone at a vastly grander scale. And, and so I, I, I just wonder if we don't need to step back from these technical discussions here and, I don't know, interrogate our respective spiritual beliefs. Well, yeah, to some extent. But my problem is that I'm less interested in the rights of natural objects. I'm, I'm very interested and very open to arguments about the duties that people have to the world in which they live. But I also think that we need to have solutions that work for people who don't share our values. Because if our solutions have to involve everyone sharing the same values to begin with, I'm slightly worried about that from an ethical point of view, but I'm massively worried about that from a practical point of view. I don't think that changing people's deep beliefs so that they all deeply believe the same thing and want the same thing is the way to produce a rich, vibrant world. And I don't think it's a practical way to do anything at all. I think, you know, I don't remotely think that people shouldn't have values. I try to live up to some fairly high values myself, and I fail, as I'm sure we all fail. There's something very fundamental about the way that environmentalism has a very strong link to this idea of values and people actually and wanting everyone to see the earth in the same way. I don't mind how people see the earth. I want them to stop harming both each other and the other inhabitants of the earth. And I should also say that I've, various conversations I've had with various people informally, if what you really want to avoid is ecosystem damage, you'll probably do quite a lot of geoengineering. You know, if the thing that's going to damage ecosystems most in the near future is extreme temperature variations. And I think the evidence is quite good that through geoengineering, you might be able to do something about that. But I don't think that's the right justification for doing it. I think that things are much more complicated than that. But the idea that, that geoengineering necessarily means environmental harm, when the alternative is, remember, not the world as it is or the world as it was, but the world as it is becoming through the processes of climate change, 
then you end up with lesser harms in some routes than others. That's all I'm saying. Well, okay. You know, I, I think that's a fair enough point of view. Well, Oliver, listen, I want to thank you very much for uh, taking the time. I really want to thank you, Chris, because among other things, I mean, it's a great opportunity to talk to people, but also it's really nice talking to someone who's read and thought about the book and, and challenges it and comes back to it and still wants to talk more. I mean, I think that's, that's just great. So thank you very much. It's been one of the nicest things I've done for a while. Well, that's, that's what this show is supposed to be all about. So super. Okay, great. Thanks very much, Chris. That was Oliver Morton, a senior editor at The Economist and the author of The Planet Remade, How Geoengineering Could Change the World. Oliver and I have different views on a number of important points, and it's probably not likely that we'd ever agree on some of them, which is fine. And I can't say that I'm particularly more of a believer in geoengineering now than I was before doing this interview and reading his book. But I will say this, it changed my mind on a number of important points. First, I now believe that geoengineering should be taken seriously as part of the possible solution set to climate change. It's silly to dismiss anything that might actually work at an acceptable cost, provided it meets the usual criteria of being properly vetted and safety tested and so on. I now think that I was wrong to be so dismissive of it before it's really been tried. Second, there's no reason that geoengineering can't be tested carefully and ramped up at a measured pace in order to control for risk. It isn't some all-or-none decision, and the risk at first would be within the range of other ordinary risks that we routinely take today. And third, it probably is a bit too precious to aim for returning the Earth to some pre-industrial state of natural purity or to hope that we can correct all of our wrongs upon the biosphere. To some extent, and we can argue about what extent that is, the planet is already irretrievably altered by human activity. And the cold fact is that humans are generally going to make decisions about what to do next from an anthropocentric point of view. We probably ought to just deal with that reality and move on. In any case, I would recommend Oliver's book to those who want to learn more about how the Earth's thermodynamic system functions, the history of man's interventions in the natural order of things, and the function and potential of various geoengineering schemes. Because we're a long, long way yet from being able to rule geoengineering out or knowing exactly how we might yet stop and reverse the man-made engines of climate change. Now, I remain a geoengineering skeptic, and I do worry that if geoengineering projects were to go ahead, that they might not be done in a measured and careful way, particularly if we wind up reaching for those solutions late in the game in a panicked way. After all, for as much evidence as Oliver presented to show that humanity has been deliberately altering the biosphere for a very long time, there is also ample historical evidence of humanity reaching in panic for last-ditch solutions without careful consideration of the risks with disastrous consequences. That possibility continues to worry me deeply. Even so, right now, I think it's fair to say that all options, including engineering, have to remain on the table. Population keeps on bleeding, nation bleeding, still more bleeding. Life is funny, skies are sunny.
And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. A report that I wish I had known about before taping episode 25 on the Energy Water Nexus has been published by a team led by the Climate Change Science Initiative at the Oak Ridge National Laboratory, which included researchers from the Sandia, Los Alamos, and Argonne National Labs. The report predicts that, quote, more severe summer heat waves and droughts in the U.S. Midwest and other regions due to climate change, along with changes in population distribution, pose risks for electricity shortages, end quote and concludes that technology, utility rate structures that encourage conservation, and the replacement of older power plants with more water-efficient ones can reduce the risk of electricity shortage. The report is part of an ongoing research effort to model predictions about population, temperature, electricity demand, precipitation, land use, and other factors to predict the water-related stress on power plants. Item 2. On September 3rd, the United States and China formally ratified the Paris Agreement to cut emissions of greenhouse gases. While 180 countries signed the agreement last December, 55 nations, covering at least 55% of global emissions, need to formally ratify the treaty in order to put it into legal effect. With the U.S. and China ratifying it, there are now 26 countries that have ratified the agreement, representing 61% of global total greenhouse gases. So the agreement is a big step closer to implementation, which would legally obligate nearly 200 governments to take action to cut emissions. If the treaty is implemented, it would also commit the countries to aspire to keep temperatures below 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. China represents just over 20% of global emissions, while the United States accounts for 18%, Russia 8%, and India 4%. Brazil, whose emissions are the seventh highest in the world, and which is looking at yet another very bad fire season due to its forest dying under its ongoing drought, is expected to be the next major country to ratify the Paris Agreement. Item 3. According to data compiled by Greenpeace, new wind and solar generation more than met all of China's electricity demand growth in 2015. Electricity demand grew by 28 terawatt hours from 2014 to 2015, while wind and solar generation grew by 48 terawatt hours. So what fuel gave up market share in order to accommodate such strong growth in wind and solar? You guessed it, coal, of which China's use fell for the third year in a row. These data show that China's energy transition is well and truly underway after many years of hand-wringing about China's coal growth. Still, there is much work to do. China's coal use is still the largest source of global CO2 emissions. Item 4. One of the unsung casualties of Brexit may be that the UK will fail to meet its renewable energy target, which was set by the European Union as part of an EU-wide pact. According to a parliamentary committee report, Britain is set to miss its target to meet 15% of its energy needs from renewable sources by 2020. As of the end of 2015, the country had just over an 8% renewable share. Britain's electricity sector is on course to meet its portion of the target, but energy used in transport and for heating homes and buildings is well behind what is needed, the committee report said. Under EU rules, Britain could be fined for missing the target, but its decision to leave the EU has put the target and its legal status in limbo. However, Britain still has a domestic target to cut its emissions by 80% compared with 1990 levels by 2050. And finally, item five. According to data from the U.S. Energy Information Administration compiled by Renewable Energy World, renewable energy has truly hit the big time. In 1999, not one U.S. state had a renewable energy as one of their top three sources of electricity generation. But in 2015, 
More than half, 22 states, had at least one of either wind, solar, or geothermal energy in their top three. In 2016, that number is likely to notch up to 23 states. In 2014, Hawaii became the first state to have solar in its top three fuel sources, and Iowa appears to be on track to be the first state to generate a majority of its power from wind. This episode marks the one-year anniversary of the Energy Transition Show, so I'd like to take a moment to thank all the listeners who have continued to listen and give us feedback and ideas for future episodes. You've all contributed to making the show a success, and I'm looking forward to providing you with another year of stimulating dialogue, particularly once we install the subscription paywall in a month or so and can start paying the people who work so hard to bring you a high-quality product. In the meantime, if you'd like to show your thanks, please pop over to our iTunes page and leave a comment there and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. And thanks again. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network. Thank you.